0: Hi, I'm Ali Muldrow, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day, on the WORT smartphone app or on WORTFM.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference.
1: Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power frequency radio mic.
0: Good afternoon. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow, and this is A Public Affair. Today, we're so fortunate to be joined by Christine Soyoung Harley, who is the CEO of CCUS, that is Sexual Information and Education Council of the United States of the United States. The organization focuses on sex education as a vehicle for social change. They believe comprehensive sex and can prevent child abuse and sexual violence. Chris works to advance education on consent and gender justice and affirmation of the LGBTQ community. How are you
1: doing today, Christine? I'm great, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for
0: joining us and for the work that you're doing. I, you know, I grew up here in Madison. I went to public school and I remember sex ed as being kind of that first boys and girls in separate classrooms, fourth grade, let's talk about puberty, um, and then really nothing else um, until like seventh grade. And then in 10th grade, we had like a little bit more information, but it was mostly puberty and um, STDs was kind of the focus. What what should sex ed be? What is kind of the de- developmentally appropriate approach to human growth and development for young people?
1: Uh, yeah, I think it's all of those things. And what we're what we believe is that sex education lays the foundations for us to understand human sexuality as a normal, natural, healthy part of becoming an adult, uh, and that it should be started from kindergarten and then built upon throughout the lifespan. Um, and when we talk about you know, sex ed in kindergarten, what we're really talking about is healthy relationships, learning how to set boundaries around your own body, learning how to respect the boundaries of your peers, um, learning how to navigate those dynamics. And so you're teaching things like consent because you're saying, you know, we need to ask first before we touch a friend. Um, You have the right to say no if somebody asks to touch you. Um, But it's it's all of those things. It's healthy relationships. It's learning relationship dynamics and skills, navigating consent, negotiation. It's the physiological, biological elements. So, you know, learning about puberty is certainly something that we want kids to be taught. Um, but it's also the social aspects of it, right? Understanding sort of the social pre- um, pressures that young people experience, how to navigate through those, um, and and all of that. So we really want sex education to be um, inclusive, medically accurate, age-appropriate, so that young people are receiving the information they need as they are growing in a way that helps them navigate those changes in their lives with clear fact based information that they can then utilize to guide their own decisions and lifestyle.
0: I think there's a lot of conversation right now about parents choice. And if you're a parent and you want to join this conversation, the number is 608 two, I'm sorry, 608 256 2001. And then you're going to hit extension nine. And Ben, who is, you know, the engineer of this show will will patch you through and you can you can join the conversation. So again, the number is 608-256-2001. Press 9 to join the show. Um, but in Wisconsin, we're a school choice state, um, which mm-hmm. means some schools have medically accurate, LGBTQ, inclusive, comprehensive human growth and development. Um, and some schools have abstinence-only sex education. When you're thinking about how to, you know, make sure kids understand their bodies, their boundaries, consent, um, have the language they need to describe their anatomy when they're talking to their doctor. Um, how do you factor in what a parent really wants for their kids?
1: Well, I think that there there's a confluence of conversations that we're having right now as it relates to sex education. On the one hand, there is the facts and um medically accurate information facts about your body and what it's going through and you know what the names of the body parts are um and then there's the values component to it right what do you do with the information in how you understand how to take that information and then use that to guide your lifestyle and your in the decisions that you make. And I think that there's um, a little bit of a combining those together in ways that don't make sense in a public school situation, right? That in public schools, we should be ensuring that young people are being taught the information that is accurate, that is fact-based, that is not actually um, you know, based on theology, or on uh, a particular viewpoint. Uh, And instead, that is really the realm of parents. That's really the realm of the churches. That's really the realm of, um, you know, how you take that information back into the household and decide what to do with it. Uh, And so, you know, there is a role for parents. There's always been a role for parents. Parents can be involved in the PTA. Parents have always had the opportunity to opt out of programs that they, in curriculum that they don't feel comfortable with. Um, They certainly don't have to, you know, rent particular books from the library or purchase them off of Amazon or whatever, um, or at the local bookstore, really. But that doesn't mean that That Those individual personal preferences should dictate how we as a society ensure that young people are receiving information that actually helps them live healthy lives and lifestyles.
0: I think one of the things that's really interesting to talk about is how, you know, how education impacts behavior. Um, And I think it's a really big claim to say, hey, we think that if young people have medically accurate information that's inclusive about human growth and development and sexuality, that there's, less of a chance they'll be the victims of of sexual assault or sexual violence or sexual abuse. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, there's only 13 states in the United States that mandate that sex ed be medically accurate. Um, Can you talk about the advantages for young people who have access to medically accurate uh, human growth and development and sex education?
1: Yeah, and I want to be just super clear. The science is overwhelming that evidence-based, developmentally appropriate, inclusive sex ed programs result in better adolescent sexual health outcomes. This means that kids are delaying when they start having sex. They have fewer sexual partners. They're engaging engaging in safer sex uh, and sex sex practices, which means they're having fewer unplanned pregnancies. They're making better uh, choices. Uh, and, and um, having less risky or dangerous or unhealthy outcomes. Sex ed also teaches about healthy relationship dynamics, which is really important for preventing against child sexual abuse, intimate partner violence, and sexual violence overall. Um, but really what we should also be caring about is that se- this kind of sex ed that's inclusive, it's appropriate, it's evidence-based, Create safer school environments that improve mental health outcomes and academic achievement for all young people, not not just our most vulnerable, but for the entire school body. And that this is the approach that is endorsed by our leading medical experts, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the American Medical Association, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine. These are all the leading medical experts that, are, that we trust to ensure that our young people, our children are growing in healthy ways. And that includes sexual health. And it's a very you know, intimate and integrated, a part of overall young people wellness to ensure that they are navigating puberty and sexual health in a healthy, uh, confident, assured way um, so that we don't have some of the dysfunctions that we see occurring later.
0: I want to ask, you know, I, I think I remember so specifically learning about puberty in this kind of segregated environment of like mm-hmm. girls You need to learn about what happens to your bodies and boys, you need to learn about what happens to yours and you don't need to understand each other's bodies. And one, it was an incredibly binary way of of, you know, Learning about puberty. Um, so for our students who identify as gender nonconforming, or students who are intersex, or all kinds of things who don't fit into that boy girl category, um, I think this is a really hard experience, right? That that mm-hmm. really makes makes you feel excluded and unseen. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I think you know. There's so much stigma and shame around menstruation, around girls having their periods, and I think it really reinforced the idea that your period was something that nobody should know about, and you should, you know, go to incredible lengths to hide and and keep to yourself. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, why why that approach, and and why maybe we should rethink it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that what you just shared is certainly an outcome. I think it's also really dangerous to have um, men who have not been taught to respect the bodily autonomy of others have complete ignorance about how how other people, gendered bodies, operate and function, how reproduction happens. what happens to the female body uh, during pregnancy and uh, and in its aftermath. I mean, there's just, <laughs> I certainly wish that these all-male panels that are having these debates had a little bit more factual information about reproduction. But I, but I think that, you know, really going back to what you're saying, it, it creates this stigma, it creates this sense that, like, uh, I— don't have any responsibility i don't have to care about the bodies of other people and i think that that's overall harmful because we lose the recognition that you know human sexuality and the way that we experience sexuality is not in an isolated situation right we're engaging in relationship with one another throughout our life and so being able to have information and the knowledge about how to na- navigate that safely Um, with respect, with affirmation of the differences that human sexuality is a very diversified experience, and being able to navigate that with respect and affirmation of each other is critically important. I mean, I do want to say that, you know, you're talking about what's going on in Wisconsin. So in 2012, Wisconsin revised its statute to no longer mandate instruction on human growth and development. And instead said that, well, if a school is teaching sex ed, that it must stress abstinence. Uh, and so it's going to vary across the state whether a school decides to teach sex ed and therefore uh, implement an abstinence approach, uh, whether that's abstinence only, abstinence plus, et cetera. And so it's really not surprising that the quality of sex ed in Wisconsin is not particularly good. But also when you have curriculum that emphasize an abstinence-only approach, what generally happens is that they're placing emphasis on the responsibility of women to prevent sexual encounters. They don't include any LGBTQ content, and then they engage in these really shame-based activities that stigmatize young women who engage in any sexual activity. And so we know that students are reporting That they have had to sit in classes where they are asked to participate in activities that compare sexually active young women to pieces of chewed gum uh spit in a cup you know just really demeaning horrible horrible ways in which young women bear the brunt uh of of the responsibility and the shame for engaging in sexual activity. But what it also means is that young boys are not being taught to respect, consent and respect young women's right to say no to sexual activity. And this is where you see the reinforcement of rape culture and sexual violence being enacted on women who are not being taught really um, how to navigate these kinds of um, sexual and relationship dynamics in healthy ways. So this is where I think the danger in what we're teaching young people manifests so painfully for those that have to go through it.
0: Uh, thank you so much for speaking to that. And I think it's a really horrifying thing to think of young people seeing themselves as, you know, chewed up pieces of gum or licked cupcakes or, you know, crinkled candy bar wrappers or whatever other comparison. And it is, you know, fundamentally, aimed at telling girls that their sexual sexuality and sexual expression, um, is dirty and gross, um, and boys can't help themselves. So they need to be, be the people who, you know, abstain from sex. And also I think the conversation around, you know, female orgasm or sex for pleasure nice. or sex for, you know, fun um, is often missing from the conversation Entirely. about human growth and development. Right. Like this emphasis on reproduction mm-hmm. is actually something that I think is really part of of the problem. Um, because, you know, I'm a person who has who's had three kids and had sex a lot more than three times. And I would say the vast majority of my adult life and my sexual life has been about pleasure. Um, and mm-hmm. we don't have that, that conversation with our young people. And so I'm curious, should we be having that conversation with our young people? Um, and if so, how? How should we have be having the conversation around sexual health and sexual pleasure?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it is really important for us to acknowledge Um, that sex can be both about pleasure and about intimacy. Um, I think that that's actually part of the conversation that we have around healthy relationships, that sex shouldn't be forced. It shouldn't feel bad. Um, You know, there should be laughter and and fun involved as much as, you know, there may be interest in eventually procreating. (laughs) Um, And I think it's important to, you know, how those conversations in very open and affirming ways. I mean, certainly as young people are, um, you know, we're not talking about, this is not a conversation about the topics that we're talking about in in elementary school, right? But this is really important conversation to have with older uh, middle school and high school kids, right? I mean, to pretend as though kids are not also experiencing pleasure or pursuing pleasure is 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 silly and i think that you know as far as the intimacy part of it goes it's again it's about respecting and affirming that these are behaviors that we are doing with another person and we have to respect and value their pleasure and you know consent and and desires as much as we are our own and i think again that changes you know the dynamic of what those um of what we are then understanding the practice to be about. But I think it's important for us to recognize pleasure and positivity within a sex ed curriculum because this is also how we are taught to navigate using contraception, navigating consent, right? Recognizing that we are teaching people how to have safer sex uh, within a context of pleasure and positivity makes it more likely that people are going to engage in the um, in the behaviors that uh, make sure that they stay as healthy as possible.
0: Oh, thank you so much for speaking to that. If you're just tuning in, just joining the conversation, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. This is a public affair. My name is Ali Maldro, And today we are incredibly fortunate to be joined by Chris Soyoung Harley, who is the CEO of C- Seek Us. That is, thank you. I'm sorry. Every time I see it, I'm like, I stumble around how to say it, but it is the Sexual Information Education Council of the United States. Can I ask Chris how you got started um, in the conversation about sex ed and human growth and development and, and what really drew you to this work?
1: You know, um, so I actually came to this is is a little bit funny because I came to the organization um, as an interim while they were looking for their next um, president and CEO. And in the midst of my interim period, I was asked to speak uh, to give a keynote speech uh, in front of a room full of sex educators. And I thought to myself, my God, what do I have to say? I don't have a background in human sexuality. But I actually just imagined how different the world would be if we had universal comprehensive sex education, if all boys were taught to, you know, respect the bodily autonomy of other people, how transformative that would be. If we were taught as a society to recognize and affirm the diversity of human sexuality so that being gay or lesbian or bi or trans wasn't scary, but just another way in which people express human sexuality. Um, I thought about how different it would be if consent was taught universally to young people, so that we didn't have encounters of sexual violence and date rape because we didn't know how to navigate saying no and where to draw boundaries. And once I started to think about that, I I realized how transformative universal sex education could have in these huge conversations that we're having in America. I was in this role, starting in this role at the same time that Brett Kavanaugh conversation was happening and the Me Too movement was, was ongoing. And to hear how many thousands of women we're talking about. I didn't know. I didn't know how to say no. Uh, having men say, "I've never. I don't like. How do we navigate this? We can't do this. Like this. You know. And it, it's too hard." Um, you know, the conversation around racial justice and Black lives uh, in this in this country is also rooted in a white supremacist framework that is terrified of people of color and communities of color being procreative, uh, of having uncontrolled reproduction, right? And a lot of the systemic institutional laws and policies that prevent communities of color from thriving are really grounded and based in trying to control the reproduction and sexuality of communities of color. And so all of these things are wrapped together because this is all about how we imagine the future of this country, who gets to be American, who gets to call themselves American, who gets to thrive and root and be successful in America. And and so, you know, I really think that sex education, if we taught sex education from an evidence-based, universal, affirming, respectful way, we could change these conversations really at the roots and grow a generation of young people who are able to navigate this diversity of our world with so much more skill and understanding and acceptance of one another. Um, And I think that what we see in this misinformation campaign that's coming after sex ed in schools, that's attacking educators, that is attacking, um these programs in schools, it's really this fear of this change that we are in the midst of. And it's, um, it's both dangerous and wrong, but, you know, also, um, I, I've kind of gotten off my point, but I think um, that this is what drew me to it. We have the power to just use facts and information to change the way that we relate to one another.
0: I think seeing the the power in this work is part of why I thought it was so important to have this conversation, especially in a state like Wisconsin, where there is school choice, where there is an emphasis on abstinence. Um, and that isn't necessarily... Getting us to the results that we want in every single cl- county across the state of Wisconsin, sexually transmitted diseases are on the rise, and they have been for the last decade. Um, every county except for one—shout out to La Crosse, um, whatever they're doing—they um, are—they have, you know, less STDs, less sexually transmitted diseases and infections than the rest of the state. But the vast majority of the state. Um, is whatever we're doing, it isn't producing the kinds of health com- outcomes we want for our young people. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if if the point of abstinence-only education is to prevent kids from engaging you know, sexually, that's not working. If the point of abstinence only is to make kids, you know, realize the the risks um, that can happen if they engage in sexuality or engage sexually, um, that's not happening effectively. You know, we're not producing... the the kinds of outcomes we want for our kids if you're interested in joining this conversation about sex education you want to talk about the education that you had um, you want to talk about what we should be doing or if you just have questions about like your little kids and what are good healthy ways to introduce young kids to information about their bodies and information about their growth and development give us a call today at 608 256-2001, 256-2001 and then press nine and Ben will patch you through. And shout out to Ben and Jade who made today's show possible um, and got you know Christine here on the air with us today on W O R T 89.9 FM for a public affair. Again, I'm your host, Ali Maldro, and we're talking about human growth and development and sex education. Christine, I'm curious, you know, as you've you've gotten to see school districts take different approaches to human growth and development in sex ed. Are mm-hmm. there districts that you go, this is a really good example of what to do? And are there districts that you go, this is a great example of what you should not be doing? Um, and, and can you kind of talk to, to the folks listening about, you know here's what best practice looks like, here's what it means to a school, um, versus here are some things you probably don't want to do because they can be harmful even if you have the best intentions.
1: Yeah, what's actually really interesting is um, the CDC's Division on Adolescent Sexual Health, they are responsible for it. Oh, I have a little uh, echo. But they're responsible for uh, administering programs um, related to uh, HIV, AIDS, uh, education and prevention in schools. But they have taken a really um, whole health approach to their programmatic work. And, and so they've actually come up with a, ser- with a series of um, recommended tactics that schools should adopt in order to have healthy outcomes. And those range from having, you know, GSA's uh, Gay Straight Student Alliances in schools is um, about implementing comprehensive sex education programs in schools. It's about ensuring um, that, uh, you know, teachers are trained to teach these subjects in age-appropriate uh, ways. And there's, there's others, and I don't know them all off the top of my head, but they've actually been able to, to demonstrate that when you implement that series of programs, um, you actually see tremendous school uh, accomplishments in terms of safer school environments, improved mental health, reduced um, risk of sexually transmitted diseases, you know, reduced uh, engagement in, um, you know, drug and alcohol abuse. Um, it's just, it's, and they are saying, we don't know, we don't know how all of these beneficial outcomes to young people result from this series of workshops. You know, there's nothing, there's less, there's, um, there's for example, one of the health outcomes is a reduction in uh, teen dating violence and sexual violence and assault. Um, and, you know, their programs, it's not, there's no, you know, sexual violence component to it, but the outcome that they've been able to document over, um, the, you know, the last several years are, is this dramatic decrease in improved school safety and academic outcomes. So we know what works and it's really, you know, so the school districts that are following this, like, you know, menu of programs um, from Dash are seeing those kind of benefits. On the other hand, um, I think the schools that, uh, re, you know, don't teach um, sex ed that create hostile environments for LGBTQ or trans young people. Um, They create hostile school environments for all kids, right? Like the odd kid who really likes, you know, dinosaurs over here is also going to have a much more dangerous school environment to exist in. Um, And... You know, and we can see what's happening in places like Texas and Florida, where those governors and elected officials are very aggressively coming after people who fall outside of a very particular, narrow Christian perception of what's right and how we should behave. Um, and you're going to see a lot of dangerous um, risks increase for young kids in terms of mental health and suicide ideation. Of- of homelessness of academic failures of you know sexual risk, risky behaviors being adopted by people who don't have stability in their lives i mean this is we are creating these kinds of environments that make it harder for young people to succeed so you know it's it's just it's apples and oranges and it's really i think a question that we are experiencing in america in this moment where our democracy is being attacked what kind of future do we want to have Um, And I think the bellwether of the school districts who are doing well by kids and really creating affirming environments for them and the school districts that are not, um, that is a really stark, uh, it's a really stark difference. In this
0: conversation about parental rights in terms of school curriculum, um, you know, part of the the conversation that I think is often missing is is really the the conversation about you know how we confront a society that hypersexualizes adolescent girls, um, yeah. and, and if you say like we have this abstinence only curriculum that promotes um, you know sex for reproduction, I think. Well, we're not actually getting the results you want from that either, um, in terms of the hypersexualization of adolescent girls and the hypersexualization of women and their bodies throughout life. So I think we live in a society that really struggles with something like breastfeeding, right? Um, and and you would think if we were really pro-reproduction and really pro, you know, sex for reproduction, that seeing someone breastfeeding would not be a super controversial thing. But as somebody who has breastfed three kids can tell you, um, we're a society that really struggles with the idea that breasts are, are for feeding babies and not necessarily for sex. Um, can you talk a little bit about One, the hypersexualization of adolescent girls and what we the messages we need to send young women to combat that hypersexualization and the and the and the messages we need to send everybody to combat that hypersexualization. And then can you also talk about, you know, why we we as a society um, have all of these issues and all of this stigma? Around birth and breastfeeding and and reproduction, if it's the area that we kind of want to emphasize,
1: <laughs> those are some very big questions. Um, I mean, this is one of the reasons that we talk about how important it is for you know our toddlers and pre-kindergartners to be taught the actual names of their body parts. It's important for young boys to be taught that they have a penis and for young girls to be taught that they have vulvas and vaginas because it destigmatizes these body parts. Um, When we pretend that they're just privates or they're just hoo haws or they're just wee-wees or whatever euphemism we use, we are teaching kids that there's something wrong and shameful about their bodies. Um, You know, there's been, I, I was looking at some of the, commentary, um, that was happening, I think in, was it in Sweden? And they launched a program where regular people would just come on the program and like walk out on stage and be like fully naked. And they would just, and it's just bodies. And, uh, you know, and there was a little controversy around like, Oh my God, you know, they're showing bodies on TV for the nation to observe. And I think that when it really comes down to it, like a boob is a boob, <laughs> right? Like like a belly is a belly. Like people are different sizes. Body parts are in different, you know, sizes and shapes and whatever, but it's all the same thing. And they all function that like breasts as food product for our infants is like a part of its function in our body and why they exist. And, and it's destigmatizing and it's normalizing all of that. And we are so... You know, we're like both so like uptight about showing body parts, and then like ogling, and you know, going on to whatever you know online resource that we can go and see some nipples, right? Like, it's all very—it's the—it's the stigma that we utilize as a society to control all of these things that then morphs in these really dysfunctional and unhealthy behaviors. Um, And so, you know, I mean, I think that, I mean, this is a hard, I I think that this is a hard question because I I actually, I don't know that I want to have messages for young girls about how to not be viewed as sexual, uh, you know, objects in our society. Um that shouldn't be the responsibility of young girls. Um, and I think it goes back to the conversation that we were having earlier about you know, not having boys and girls separated uh, from each other, including um, men in this conversation. That all of this is a part and a parcel of moving the conversation away from sex being dirty and shameful and kinky because you know you got to you know see a body part that's usually hidden by an article of clothing and is about recognizing and making okay that sex and sexuality can be expressed in a variety of ways and you know it being important to respect that. Um, What was the second half of your question? (laughs)
0: I feel like you tackled both halves. So I was talking one about the hypersexualization of young women and how we prepare young women to combat that. Um, and I love the answer that it's everybody's job to, to take responsibility for that and to understand how dangerous that is. And then I also asked about, you know, a society that thinks of sex as for reproduction, and then yeah. stigmatizes breastfeeding. Um, and I think that there's the other part of that conversation, which is this is there is a part of this that isn't about human growth and development and sex ed. There's a part of this that is about science right Mm -hmm. um are mammals right that's basic biology and so mammals uh feed feed their young milk from their bodies that's not that's not an abnormal thing and i think having our and how
1: amazing right how amazing that our bodies can do that i mean honestly i want to put on my resume that i breastfed my twins for you know 12 months. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. I'm like, that's some extra credit breastfeeding when those two infants involved. I'm, I'm like, I would, I'd hire you. I'd be like, she can get anything done. Um, but I, I think, you know, I was on a panel a few years ago. Um, with a group of kids, I was moderating a panel and it was all kids in the in middle school. Um, mm-hmm. And I have a middle schooler right now and it's amazing when you're not the parent how much more openly kids will talk to you about yeah. the things that they are experiencing. But one of the questions um, an educator asked these kids was how many of you have been exposed to pornography before no. you were exposed to human growth and development, before any parent... Or adult talk to you about sex how many of you had had been exposed to pornography and every single kid on the panel raised their hands none of them were being exposed to pornography at school that was something that they were you know experiencing through their phones or at home or at a friend's house um you know you know beyond the the scope of the school day but I think we often think like, if we don't have these conversations with our kids, they're not having them. And that was a real reality check for me, that kids are not only having these conversations, but they're being exposed to really graphic sexual content, whether it is the music we listen to or simply the ease at which kids can access pornography. How do you talk to parents about that? And I think of that as a more you know, kind of modern Phenomena. Not that there wasn't porn back in my day. I'm not that old, but it really was different to, you know, steal a video from a friend's parents or, you know, find a playboy in your grandpa's closet versus like, you know, be exposed to what, what, what pornography is on the internet right now. Um, what can parents do to kind of talk to their kids about the reality of of pornography? um and and how should parents respond, knowing that, you know, kids are are accessing those kinds of images and and that that is really easy for young people to get a hold of?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I do think that this is a blind spot or, you know, it's like the the monkey with the hands over their eyes, right? Like, we just want to pretend that this stuff doesn't exist or that it won't happen. And it, it really puts our young people, our kids, at great risk. Um, I was speaking, we actually did a program on this. Um, our, we did a Seek Us Online on the importance of having porn li- literacy as a part of sex education programming. And uh, Justine Fonte, who is an intersectional uh, health educator, spoke about... Um, Taking questions similar, taking questions from kids and a fifth grade girl, asking her, you know, when when was she supposed to start shaving her pubic hair because she knew that that was uh, an expectation um, for her to to do that, and and she realized it was because she had been exposed to pornographic content, and so we have to be able to have these kinds of conversations with our kids. Because if we think that an abstinence only approach is, you know, and having kids sign, you know, purity pledges or whatever is going to stop them from going and seeking this information out elsewhere, we are fooling ourselves. Um, and it's important for us to make clear, this is entertainment content for adults. The behavior that you may see depicted can be dangerous, can be violent, can be um, harmful, that it is not re- representative of like actual sexual activity, um, and and then helping kids navigate and, and being and given the literacy tools to ask, you know, um, critical thinking questions about the content that they're being exposed to, and recognizing the dynamics of what is a healthy uh, relationship and sexual encounter versus an unhealthy one, and be, to be able to piece that out, I think would um, would really protect a lot of people. You know, I was reading uh, some of the articles about um, oh, I'm now I'm forgetting the actor's name, but he was accused by a number of women of engaging in um, kind of half consent, half rape-based activities. But there was a lot of, you know, I think he was uh, like a cannibal. He wanted to eat people. Like it was very, and one of the things that I noticed in those conversations, you know, one woman was like, well, I said that he could choke me, but uh, then he kept doing it outside of my consent. Me saying yes once did not translate to consent in other practices. But I was also wondering why this this was the way in which he wanted to engage in his, sexual activity. And I think that this is unfettered pornographic consumption, that that people are being exposed to very dangerous um, sexual encounters and that it's being normalized because we are not having conversations about what is healthy and how do you navigate kink or uh, bondage or, or, you know, these other practices in ways that are respectful and uh, and, uh, consensual or the person that you're engaging in these things with. And so when we don't have those kinds of conversations and give people the content and context to be able to navigate these things thoughtfully, you have these these situations where I think people are really um, being asked, being pushed outside of their comfort zones and, and, uh, and being placed in very dangerous situations.
0: Oh, I so appreciate you emphasizing kind of the critical thinking component part of this, because I think part of what I was asking in my question around the hypersexualization of adolescent girls isn't about adolescent girls being the people who say, actually, I'm not a sexual object and that being their job. But I think if we don't have that conversation with girls that you get so inundated with messages that your body is for the entertainment and consumption of others that it can be really easy to go along with that. It can be really Mm -hmm. hard to say, actually, my body belongs to me. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think now girls are getting even more messages that their bodies do not belong to them and their bodies are, you know, vessels for babies and vessels for the pleasure of other people. Um, We have a comment from a listener. The caller says, we need more advances in male birth control, preventing unwanted pregnancy." shouldn't be just the burden of young women. The caller says there has been trials in Australia for injections, and he wonders why it's not something we have in the USA. And I so appreciate your, your comment. We did do a show recently um, that was all about highlighting male birth control. But, Christine, I'm wondering, you know, what's your response to that in terms of, you know, who, who birth control is is marketed at more aggressively?
1: Oh, I think definitely the responsibility for contraception is has been mainly uh, the on the onus of uh, you know people with uteruses. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I would be interested in what your program uncovered. I mean, my sense is that where when there have been products and trials, you know, outside of condoms um, tar- uh, targeted for uh, people with penises, um, the inconvenience or Discomfort factored will 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 end that trial. So you know, while on the other hand, I think this is I think it's actually really important for us to acknowledge how birth control is also marketed to girls. Like we're just told, like oh, there's a pill, like you'll be fine. And there's different hormones that are involved. It requires you know you have to take it at certain times. It can disrupt your own internal. Uh, chemistry, and there are, you know, <laughs> plenty of side effects. There are long-term versions. There are non-chemical versions, but, like, there's a there's a wide range that have different levels of risk factor and health implications and, and body impact implications that we do not acknowledge or talk about at all, and, you know, we're just sort of sent to the gynecologist, and, like, I mean, I I went through, like, five different versions of pills being, like, this sucks, <laughs> And I don't want to do this. And then I did the depot shot and then it was like, Oh, actually there are these long-term health consequences that if you do this too much. And I like didn't have a period for six months because my body was shedding this injection that I had been, I mean, it's, it's wild how much women and our bodies are expected to just navigate (laughs) contraception and the prevention of fertilization. Um, But you know, it's, it's discomforting. So we don't have those trials happening in the United States for men.
0: I mean, I I'll say this, when we talked, I was, I, because of everything you just listed, when we had the conversation about the contraceptive that is being studied for men, that I am, I'm a huge supporter of this study and this work and the yes. folks we talked to right.
1: about it. Please continue. <laughs>
0: I found out that it was like a topical cream. Um, and I was like, so wait, are you telling me that the male version of birth control is going to be like a shoulder massage um, that you give daily? And, um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I had a little hard feelings about the fact that like a hand lotion, is going to be the the male equivalent to the pill or depo or you know having an iud i want to talk a little bit about really little kids because i do think sometimes mm-hmm. when we have these conversations people go wait how does my one-year-old or my three-year-old fit into this? For me, as the parent of a one-year-old, I say to people all the time, I've been talking to my kids about consent since they were born. And that really started with changing their diaper, right? Like talking about their body parts, giving them information. I'm not going to ask my kid, can I change your diaper? But I am going to say like, I'm going to touch your leg now. And I am going to remove your diaper now. And now we're putting on a clean diaper. And like, so that they're oriented to what's happening to their body. How do you talk to parents about talking? Talking to toddlers and little kids about bodily autonomy, about their their private parts? um, And is there an age that's just too little? Kids don't need that information.
1: Uh, I think that this is a really good and important question because I think that there's so much misinformation. And I really just have to say to the parents who are listening to this, the misinformation that is being spread about Um, sex education, particularly in K through two, lies. It's just lying. And it's also so dangerous because we are putting our young kids at risk by not having these conversations. But it's exactly, you know, and I think it's really important to say sex ed in kindergarten, first, second grade is not about sex at all. It's not at all about sex. It is simply about Um, you know, understanding body parts, recognizing consent in touch, uh, being able to name I'm uncomfortable with you touching me and I want to say no to that. Knowing how to get help if you do feel uncomfortable. It's about being taught that there are different kinds of families and family structures and all of this is okay. It's really like the things that we want our kids to be taught, right? That like, um, you have to ask permission before hugging your friend, because maybe your friend doesn't want to be hugged. And if you hug them without their permission, that might cause a big fight, right? So we don't want to do that. It's navigating our feelings when this happens. How do you express anger or, or, or sadness or hurt in ways that are Um, safe for everyone and safe for you, right? And so that's what this is. It's these building blocks for healthy relationships and knowing your body and being able to respect the bodies of others. That's what we're talking about really young. And I don't think that there's an age that's too early because two and three-year-olds, one of the things they're fighting for is control over some aspects of themselves and giving them control over yes you get to touch me yes i understand who has permission i can say no and you have to listen to me it's really important for kids to be taught and to know and to affirm and then to be built upon throughout life and again just that simple piece is it would be transformative for our society
0: oh i saved my hardest question for you for last but i could talk to you christine all day um i i think you know. There is a movement right now that is trying to conflate folks who want inclusive, medically accurate, developmentally appropriate human growth and development taught in schools um, that that wants to really say those people are harmful to kids, that those kid, people are grooming kids. Um, there's all this message that's really associating folks who want comprehensive sex education with pedophiles. Um yeah. And simultaneously, we live in a world where the the Catholic Church um, is highly associated with harming children um, as an expression of sexual repression, right? As like their their approach to human growth and development and sex is as repressive as possible. And the, um, the results have been that kids acro- around the world have been assaulted in churches. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about... Why, why there is this, this movement to associate, you know, medically accurate, comprehensive sex education, um, with, with grooming and with, with child molestation. Um, and there's a lack of real awareness or willingness to examine how religion has, has contributed to harming kids sexually and sexual violence.
1: Yeah, I mean, once again, I think that this is a misinformation campaign, and it is not a grassroots movement. Uh, You know, the Moms for Liberty and these other aggressive Christian nationalist ideological entities are really, I think, capitalizing off of the recent Dobbs decision and the, you know, increasing conservative nature of the judicial system. Um, to really come after the right to privacy to make personal reproductive health care decisions um, for Americans. And and so, you know, I, I do think that we should be asking why the same people who are publicly flirting with the QAnons, the fascist forces in our society, are in, in our doing this because they're so eager to roll back the right to abortion care, to contraception access, also want to deny young people the very information that will help them navigate this new world with facts and and information rather than shame and stigma and fear. And I can't help but think about the fact that many of the leaders of these entities have also been accused of sexual misconduct. And when you create a world in which shame is used to control sexual activity and sexual behavior, um, you see these kinds of dysfunctions uh, manifest. I mean, the young man who shot and murdered the, you know, Korean women in Atlanta talked about his sexual dysfunction and shame based from coming from a conservative Christian um, community. And so all of these things are interconnected, but I think it's all interconnected into this idea of our reproductive rights are now being threatened by anti-democratic forces in society who are willing to use fascist measures to take our, away our rights. And, this is, and in the Supreme Court decision, they laid a very through line around the right to contraception, the right Uh, The right to abortion, the right to contraception, the right to LGBTQ uh, personal sexual activity in the privacy of one's own home to all of these things. And so I think we have to be really clear um, that that's what's happening. And, you know, when sex education is denied young people, we don't have the tools to prevent those rights from being taken from us.
0: I cannot thank you enough for joining us today on WORT, Chris. Um, I am so glad that you're doing the work you're doing. I could talk to you all day, but I, I've got got to let you go because we're, we're at the end of the hour. Thank you. Thank you, so much. Much. thank you to everybody who listened to A Public Affair. And we'll be back next week on Tuesday with another great episode.
1: Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio.